Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. My name is Jeff Birch, and I'm the pastor here at Lake Oconee. And whether you are here in person or over the live stream, we welcome you, and we are thrilled that you have chosen to worship with us this morning. If you're worshiping with us over the live stream, we would invite you to let us know that you are here. Check in in some way, like the page, subscribe, follow, say hi, do whatever, but let us know that you're worshiping with us from wherever you are worshiping with us. And here, in person, and this is for everyone, there are friendship books that are on the end of your row. So if the first person there would start them down the row, and this is not only for visitors, this is for regular attenders and members alike, it gives us the opportunity to get to know you. And, you know, we talk about our vision of loving God and loving one another and loving the community. This is just one of those tangible ways that we can love one another, beginning a relationship, a friendship. So we want to get to know you. Before we enter into worship, I just have a couple of announcements I want to make. Uh, One is that our officer nominations have been extended for one week. And so, uh, friends, if there is someone that's on your heart to nominate for either elder or deacon, you have one more week. July 4th would be the deadline. Uh, Let them know, you know, talk to them, see if they feel called, led, interested, and then fill that out before next Sunday. Also, this week, uh, Evie and I will be gone, along with the Roundtrees and the Hildebrands, attending our denomination's General Assembly. And for those of you who are going, what is that? Did we join the English Parliament or something like that? No, that is just, call it the big denominational meetings, where we all get together from all over the country, uh, vote on certain things that determine the direction, the vision, hear reports, get to see what the Lord is doing in the church. It actually can be a very, very exciting and encouraging time, but we would appreciate your prayers as well. Now, we are also looking to kickstart or restart a ministry uh, that was started, I believe, in the fall of 2019. And before I get going and telling you too much about it, let me have my good friend Russell Puppy come on up and share a little bit with you. If you were here last week, uh, you heard Pastor Jeff say, I had a wealth of knowledge. I shook in my boots all week looking for that wealth. (laughs) In Eureka, I found it. And Pastor Jeff, when I get done expounding, your sermon's probably going to run into lunch hour. (laughs) Seriously, um, our wealth is in prayer and faithfully trusting in God. I'm asking you to keep ESL in your prayers. Pray for the students. Pray for the teachers, the assistants. Just pray for the uh, mission that we uh, uphold with uh, ESL. And what is that mission? I left out a very critical part in the little write-up that's in the bulletin. The mission of ESL is not just teaching English, but it is to share the gospel. Each week, the teachers go through a Bible verse, a Bible story, sharing the gospel with our students. This brings the gospel to our neighbors and our community. Some quick details from uh, 
ESL, as Pastor mentioned, we started in October 2019. Over the first few weeks, we had over 59 people come in and register uh, for the classes. Over 50 paid the $20 to get their uh, textbook. We were scrambling to say, where are we going to put these people? Where are we going to get classroom space? Um, we had students from Colombia, Dominican Republic, Guatemala, Mexico, Venezuela, and even from Poland. Attrition started in the last months before COVID stopped us. We had about 14 to 18 each week in our classes. To start out uh, the class at registration, we do an assessment of the student's proficiency in English and then assign to a class somewhat uh, appropriate for their level of speaking. Last year, we had uh, five levels of classes, foundation basic, foundation advanced, level one, level two, and advanced. And we staffed the nursery, which also told a Bible story and taught the students. Volunteers get to know the students. They have birthday parties. They have uh, holiday theme classes. Uh, one class even invited the, the women to the uh, Christmas tea. So we get to know them and become very close with them. But above all, we have fun. The students have fun. The teachers have fun. We make it a fun uh, exercise. But it is a commitment. You know, we meet every Sunday from 4 to 6 p.m., uh, we follow the school calendar, so when there's a school break, uh, we take a break. We know this church family has many family obligations, vacations, and travel plans. That is why we need enough volunteers so we can team teach. You know, if you volunteer and then have an obligation to attend a wedding or travel someplace, you know, we plan to have a backup for you so that Team teaching, someone can step in and take care of that class for that week. We had uh, over 24 volunteers last time, so I would hope that we could achieve that again. Uh, I know the, those that volunteered would love to share their experience about it, so if you're here, would you stand up if you volunteered last time? You could ask them some questions and... Uh, you know, they would love to uh, tell what the program's all about. As stated, you do not need to speak a foreign language. Our classes are all in English, and essentially we were, use pictures and the printed word and talk to the students in English. Training for the teachers is available via Zoom. I have training schedules to show you. So, we need volunteers. Please pray about committing to this community outreach ministry. I will answer questions and take names after the service in the narthex. Thank you. Russell, thank you so much. We do need to keep this very, very important to ministry. What an exciting possibility for an outreach into our community. 
and so I echo what Russell said. If you uh, are considering it, please pray about it and consider being a part of this ministry. We are, we praise the Lord for what he is doing in our midst. One of the most exciting things about being a pastor, it's not just that I sit there and go, well, here's the direction and here's where we're going. I actually get this kind of watch what the Lord is doing. See where God is opening things up and then help lead us and support us in those directions. And God's at work here at Lake Oconee, and I'm very excited about that. Friends, as the prelude is played, as we prepare our hearts to enter into the very presence of God, let's prepare our hearts for worship. Alleluia. Amen. Amy, thank you. We are led into the throne room of God 
to praise and adore Him and to worship Him. And our call to worship this morning is from Psalm 105, verses 1 through 4. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Tell of all His wondrous works. Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. Father, oh, that we would be a people that seek your presence continually, that we would glory, that we would absolutely obsess in your majestic holy name. Open our lips that our mouths may proclaim your praise and graciously grant us your presence that we may worship and adore you through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Let's stand and sing together the great hymn of the faith, O Worship the King. confession of faith this morning comes from Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 to 17. I know it's a little bit of a lengthy passage, so take a deep breath. We can do this together. I'll try to read slowly, and uh, which the Northeast and me might find difficult, but I'm going to do my best. And uh, let's confess our faith, reading the scriptures together. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. 
For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You know, one of the things that strikes me in this passage, you know, we look at this as the law of God. We look at this as the Ten Commandments, and rightly so. And it's very easy for us to get into the mindset that it's law. Where is the grace? But did you notice on the commandment about taking the Lord's name in vain, where it talks about God as a jealous God, and he doesn't, he'll punish us, and his justice and his judgment are real to what, the third and fourth generations? Did you catch something in there? He will show mercy and steadfast love to the thousandth generation. We're not going to deny the judgment and the justice of God. But we're only going to look at it, we're going to see it, to highlight, to blow us away about the grace of God. Now, one of the things that is absolutely a thrill for us to do as a session is to hear testimonies of God's grace, of God's people, and to receive them into membership. And so I would like to invite Hal and Chelsea Johnson, and I know this one lady really well, Evie Birch, if they would join me. I didn't practice this for the live stream. I'm not real sure. Sorry, folks. I don't know exactly where to put everybody and do this. I just figured they didn't want to climb all the way up, up top, so I decided to come down here. You need to know how we receive members in the Presbyterian Church in America. Evie and Chelsea and Hal are already, they have been received into membership by the session, the elders of Lake Oconee Church. So this is no test for them this morning. They're members. They can answer the questions. Now, I'm going to encourage them to answer them correctly, but they can answer them any way they want. They're in. This is a time of reception and a time of recognition. This is a time of sharing with you all what the Lord has done in their lives, and to celebrate together 
the fact that God is growing his church here at Lake Oconee. Give thanks to the Lord, the call to worship said. That's what we're doing this morning. We are giving thanks to the Lord. And so I'm going to ask them the question. These are the questions that come out of our book of church order. Isn't that fancy paper they give us for that? It reads like a lawyer's book. But these are the questions that we have uh, presented to them. They've already answered. But for you all to hear, we're going to ask them again. And so for Hal and Chelsea and Evie, do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy? And do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? And do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? And do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? Let us pray together. Father, we give thanks to you and we glory in your holy name that you are committed to your bride, the church, and that you're growing your church here at Lake Oconee. We thank you for your work of grace in Hal's life, in Chelsea's life, in Evie's life. We thank you for what you have done to rescue them, to transfer them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your son whom you love. We praise you for your work in their lives. We pray, Father, for their service here. We pray for us to be a mutual encouragement to one another, that we would cultivate your love for us in one another's lives. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Lake Oconee, let's welcome them into membership. And I always like to say, we have free stuff. Hal, welcome. I have to read first. Chelsea, welcome. Evie, we'll get to hang this up at home. (laughs) Blessings to you all. Let's continue to worship, standing together and singing. Praise to the Lord as we sing, wonderful, merciful Savior.
Join with me in a time of prayer where we will together recite the Lord's Prayer together and I will lead us in a time of pastoral prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father, we thank you for who you are. We do adore you and we thank you for your presence here this morning. May we continue to glory in your holy name. May we, as we continue to worship, hallow your name and set it apart. May we fall more deeply in love with you as we approach your word in a few moments, as we hear from your text, as you speak to us in love. And we pray, Father, for the coming of your kingdom. Our hearts hurt over many of the things going on in the world. And we long, we say, come, Lord Jesus. We know that in Jesus, the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God was begun, was inaugurated. We see those effects around us. We see the tangible signs of grace. But we also know that it has not yet been completed. It has not yet been consummated. So as we've just sung, we do hunger for you. Our hearts always hunger for healing and grace. And we long for your kingdom and we ask your forgiveness that the tendency of our hearts could be to suppress that longing, to deny that longing. We pray instead that we would allow our hearts to long and feel an ache and to say, come Lord Jesus. And we pray that we would be more and more committed each day to the doing of your will. Right here in Greene County, Putnam County, Central Georgia, the lake country, as it is in heaven. We long for what looks like the city of man now to be transformed and to look like more and more like the city of God. We ask, Father, for you to come down amongst us, revive our hearts, and we depend upon you for our daily bread. We depend upon you to nourish us physically, spiritually, in every way. And we pray, Father, for us to be a gracious, forgiving people, forgiving others our debts as you forgive us. And Lord, we pray for our own holiness of life, that you would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, and yours is the glory forever and ever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's pray together as we approach God's Word this morning. Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and that your Holy Spirit would take from what is Jesus, bringing glory to him and quicken it and apply it to our hearts, that we be filled and our hearts be directed to the love of God in Christ, that we would be strengthened, that as we leave this place and enter into the mission field that is the world, we'd be equipped with the gospel. And that this would be a time of worship where we see Christ portrayed as crucified and we fall more deeply in love with him. Lord, I ask that you would anoint us all, speaker and hearers alike, in Jesus' name, amen. We are returning, we took a little break last week, and we're returning to Paul's letter to the Romans this morning. And we are looking at Romans chapter 1, where we left off was verse 18, and I'm going to read to the end of the chapter, which is at verse 32. And so Romans 1, 18 to 32, friends, hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. When I was growing up, my favorite sports were basketball and baseball. See, I was too small. I wasn't allowed to play football. 
You realize when Pop Warner football came out for me, I didn't even weigh 60 pounds. I guess I made up for that. But I wasn't allowed to play football, so I took up baseball and basketball, and I really enjoyed it. Later on, I took up golf. Not that I'm any good at it, but I enjoy it. And when I got to junior high school, back then they called it junior high school. Now it's middle school. But back then it was 7th, 8th, and ninth grade, and it was junior high school. I played on the school basketball team. I was kind of pleased with myself. Starting point guard, I came out there, and I actually had a pretty decent shot and could do that. And so I made the team in 7th and 8th grade. And then in ninth grade, it was time for me to move up to the varsity. I was really excited. I practiced all summer. I think I drove my parents crazy with the amount of practice I did. I got in shape. I was really ready for this. And then you know what happened? I got cut. And I know Michael Jordan got cut from his team as well, but I didn't become Michael Jordan. And I was absolutely devastated. And I went up to the coach, and I asked him why he cut me. And I was waiting to hear it's some skills. I'll practice my skills. I'll get better. I'll try it. And he just said, point blank, I'm too short. Now, that devastated me, but it also did something else. It provided me with a powerful message that I hate to admit still affects me, still impacts me to this day. And that message was that my being short was never going to get in my way again. I would prove myself. I would never be told I am not good enough. In fact, about the same time, and I have to admit, I went, went on YouTube, had to look up this commercial. I remember this. This was 1970-something, whatever. And Robert Conrad, anybody remember the actor Robert Conrad? Okay, he did, and he was also a short man. And he did a commercial for EverReady batteries. And he put the battery on his shoulder. And I looked it up this morning on YouTube, just kind of, I almost felt like doing the Rocky music and getting pumped up for the sermon. And he put it on his, on his shoulder and he looked into the camera and he says, I dare you to knock it off. Go ahead, knock it off. And inside, I just went, yes! He's my hero. I have always struggled to feel good enough. Now, I wouldn't call it back then, age 14, 15, whatever I was, conviction of sin. It didn't lead to my conversion at that moment. It wasn't the time I became a Christian. But I do think God used it for something in my life. It led me to an awareness that what was wrong, both out in the world and in here, in me, was not just a matter of wrong behavior, but it was a matter of the heart. And that understanding how my heart worked, call it the dynamics of my heart, might be a little bit more important than I first thought. See, something happens to us in our circumstances Whenever something bad happens out there, we're offended, we're betrayed, we're rejected, we're hurt, whatever it might be. It triggers something, and our hearts respond to it dynamically. And so, I want to ask you, this is my question for this morning, and this is my application for this morning. I want you to explore your heart, how your heart works 
See, it's easy to look at a passage like this and you say, oh yeah, go Jeff. Talk about all those red letter sins. Tell us how bad the world, the culture out there is. Now I want to say a couple of things. Okay, First, yes there is in this passage, very frank, very honest truths in this passage about things like sexuality and God's design for our sexuality. And the Bible, nor myself, we can't shirk from that. But second, I want you to also look at the list of sins. I'm going to make it very simple for you. The list of what I would call yuck. Okay, not just the red letter sins. Did you, did you hear stuff like malice, envy? Oh yeah, gossip was even mentioned in there. I mean, Paul, he is so, he called it unrighteousness of all kinds. And then he said, inventors of evil. Have you ever thought about your heart that way? Not only do I care to do evil, I make it up as I go. I'm an inventor of evil. He talks about things like strife, disunity, deceit, all manner of unrighteousness. And so even if maybe we don't struggle with the red letter sins, don't think that we're off the hook. One other thing, as I just kind of introduce this before we get into the meat and bones, so to speak, of the passage... I want us to remember we need to put this in context. What's going on in Romans chapter 1? This is the beginning of the first major section. See, in verses 1 through 17, Paul's introducing himself to the Romans. Hi, I'm Paul. You're Rome. I'm writing you a letter. He's talking about the gospel. Verse 17, he lays out the thesis for the whole letter when he says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For the gospel pulls back the curtain. It unveils something. It reveals something. The righteousness of God. And now he's going on to show the beginnings of how the gospel actually reveals the righteousness of God. See, we have to understand that the righteousness of God is revealed in at least two ways. It's manifested in two ways. There are two aspects of God's righteousness. Think of it as two sides of the same coin. Where the two sides are distinct and yet inseparable. The one side is that the righteousness of God has the power to save. We love that part, don't we? But the other is also the revelation of God's divine wrath, his justice, his holiness, his judgment. One biblical scholar put it this way. He said, the section, though, is not simply about the human plight. We can't make it all about us. It's not all about us. It's about God's own problem, and it gives a preliminary statement of God's way of dealing with it. He writes, God creates humans to bear the divine image within the creation. He called Israel to shine the divine light into the dark world. And now, faced with human rebellion and Jewish faithlessness, will God abandon these projects? Of course, the answer is absolutely not. The gospel is always a revelation of the faithfulness of God. The same scholar in giving a big picture of this passage, and here's the key to understanding our hearts. So this is what I want you to highlight, write down, listen to it again, do whatever you have to do to get this. Wrong thought patterns, and I'm going to add to this, that wrong thought patterns come from wrong worship, 
lead to wrong behavior. Wrong worship and wrong thinking lead to wrong behavior. So it's not enough to just kind of look at the behavior, look at the law, look at it, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do that. We need to dig down deep and understand our hearts and how our hearts work and get to the root of things. So I guess I could have titled this sermon, Join Me in Becoming Archaeologists, because we're all going to dig down deep into our hearts this morning. And we're going to do so by looking at two things. I want us to understand the problem of our hearts and the solution to our hearts. See, I gave you a long introduction, but the outline is simple. If you're taking notes, you write two words, problem, solution. How's that? And, you, and you're thinking, it's a two-point sermon. I may get out to lunch early. Probably not. Two longer points. How's that sound? All right, let's understand the problem. Look with me at the beginning of the text, and here's the beginning of the bad news. And I want you to notice that little word for, because that's connecting verse 18 with the context before, because he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for, for this reason, for the gospel's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Then he says, for again, for the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation reveals a righteousness, a righteousness that's from God. And then verse 18 says, for, so we're still in the revelation of God's righteousness, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, wrath is a very unpopular topic today. See, it's probably a good thing that I didn't stand up here last Sunday and go, okay, next week, I want you to invite all your friends. We're going to have Friendship Sunday. Invite them all, because the topic is the wrath of God. I want you to knock on the doors of your neighbors and tell them all, you need to come hear my pastor preach. He's preaching on divine wrath. wonder how many of you all would have shown up if you knew that ahead of time. Wrath is a very unpopular topic today. There are many who either want to deny it, that God gets angry, or that there's a such thing as divine judgment. But I want to make a statement to you. And that statement is that you need an angry God. If you have any hope, if you want to have any hope for the injustice of the world being taken care of and the world being put to rights, any hope for wrongs being righted, you need a God who takes matters into his own hands. See, I love how the biblical scholar N.T. Wright puts it when he says, it is because the creator God remains implacably opposed to all the forces of evil and has a passionate concern for creation and his humans within creation that there is hope. Do you hear that? The wrath of God is what gives us hope. Now, let me explain. First of all, what is the wrath of God? That is, in the present being revealed and will one day, in final judgment, be consummated. First thing we need to realize is that God's wrath, God's anger, is nothing like our own. Okay, you know what our anger is usually like. Oh, the Yankees lost again last night. 
Oh, I'm so angry. I'm cranky. I'm irritable. I'm moody. Can you believe Aaron Boone took out that picture? Can you believe that? That's the wrath of man. You know what it's concerned about? Myself, my own feelings, blocked goal of some sort. But God's anger in the Bible is not how our anger is. It's not crankiness. It's not ego. It's not ill-tempered. It's not out of control. It's not an explosion. It is, and Tim Keller puts it this way, it is a settled, fixed, implacable, incorruptible opposition to injustice and evil. It is God's commitment that no debt will go unpaid, every account will be squared, and nobody will get away with anything. That's why his wrath is a revelation. It is pulling back the curtain on God's righteousness, his majesty, his faithfulness. Now, once again, how does this give us hope? Let me quote here from a Croatian writer. And as a Croatian writer, he would be very acquainted, well familiar with injustice and evil. His name is Miroslav Volf, and he writes this. He says, the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. Violence flourishes today secretly nourished by the thought that God refuses to take the sword. Anybody who says that a God of vengeance will lead to violence has not actually been a victim of violence themselves. It says you live in a nice bubble. When you've been a victim of violence or injustice or abuse, you will have to pay back. You will have to get even unless you are sure there is a God of vengeance, a God who hates injustice, a God who is angry at injustice, and a God who will settle every account. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying nonviolence. And he's not just talking physical there. You know, emotional violence, things like malice and strife, deceit, disunity, all of those things. Being a peacemaker, what the Bible calls us to, blessed are the peacemakers, not just the peacekeepers, but the peacemakers, is impossible without belief in a judge. Why is that? Because we will want to take on the job of ourselves. See, I want you to think about it. And here's where it's challenging. You have to look at your heart. We're looking at the dynamics of your heart. How do you respond when you are hurt, when something bad happens to you, when you are offended, when you are rejected, when you are betrayed, when you are abused? What is your knee-jerk reaction? If we're honest, isn't it to get even? Isn't it something to say, they have to pay? See, there is a cost whenever a wrong is committed. Somebody has to pay. But see, if you don't believe that one day God will take care of it, really take care of it in true justice, that in other words, he has all the wisdom. He has the information to know exactly what is needed. He will never deny the abuse. He will never deny the hurt and pain. He will never sweep it under the rug. He's not a laissez-faire God. He will deal with it. The question becomes, who has all the information, all the knowledge, and all the wisdom to know exactly what is needed? And so if we're going to have hope, we need a God 
of justice. We need a God of wrath. We need an angry God. But now what is God's wrath revealed against? The text says, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Which is why we need to understand not only, and remember this is a both and, not only is it all the specific sins that are listed, but we need to go to the root and see what is the underlying cause, the underlying root of sin. And in a nutshell, the underlying root of sin is idolatry. It is a turning away from God. Look with me at verse 21. Follow the logic with me. Follow the pattern with me in verse 21. It says, for although they knew God, in other words, there's some sort of innate knowledge of God in every human being. It's suppressed, it's, and the picture that's being given by that suppression in verse 18 is like holding something under the water. You ever get in a pool and have kind of one of those floaty type things or something like that? Or maybe you give one of those floaty type things to your grandchildren and you watch it. Hold it under the water. What is it constantly trying to do? It's trying to come back up, right? Paul is saying, the text is saying, that's what we do with the truth of God. God's made the truth about himself. He's revealed himself in the created world and in our hearts. He's made it plain to us. But our commitment is for our own being in control, being independent. We'll do it ourselves to turn away from God, and we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We're constantly trying to hold it down. So verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Think about those words. What does it mean to honor God and give thanks to him? That's worship language. What do we chiefly do in worship? We take the attention off ourselves and we give praise to God. We give thanks to God. Isn't that what the call to worship from Psalm 105 said? Give thanks to Him. Glory in His holy name. The root of sin is that we turn away from God, and if we're not glorying in His holy name, what are we glorying in? Ourselves. And so look at the consequences. They became futile where? In their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise. Oh, you should underline, highlight, highlight in several different colors that, that little phrase. There's a lot of root of sin right there. Claiming to be wise. In other words, I know what's right. I know what makes sense to me. I know the truth. And that's just not non-believers. Um, we do that too. Claiming to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. See, look at this. They didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. That's worship language. They failed to worship. And because of that, see, it's a worship problem. The root is always a worship problem. And because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Sounds a lot like Genesis 3, doesn't it? 
You think maybe Paul, who's rooting the gospel in the soil of the Old Testament, I've said that a time or two before, is maybe wanting to get the Roman Christians to think back of the Old Testament and think back to Genesis 3, where what did Adam and Eve did? They turned away from God, and instead of listening to the Creator, they listened to the voice of an agent within creation. But see here, I want you to notice something because the pattern is simple. And again, I'm indebted to Tim Keller for this. He puts it so practically and so simply. He says, remember these things. He says, we were made for God. We were created. Here's your purpose in life. You were created to worship God. Do you know what that means? That means the only satisfaction for the human longings, for the human condition, what our, didn't we sing it in Wonderful Merciful Savior today? Our hearts always hunger for. You know what our hearts hunger for? God. Our hearts hunger, we were created, our designer built us this way, to worship God, to live for Him. Living for Him is what brings purpose and significance and satisfaction and joy. Don't ever deny that you want joy. Your heart hungers for joy. But recognize that it was created for joy in worshiping and serving God. You're a creature, not the Creator, and you were built for God. But because we turn away from Him, we want to control our own lives. So what do we do? We eliminate God. We do not want God to shape us. We want to be the masters of our own fate. We want to be the determiners of our own happiness. We will say, I know what makes me happy. I know best for me. And so what do we do? There's a vacuum that's left that must be filled, and we then proceed to fill it with God substitutes. And those God substitutes are what the Bible calls idols. Now listen to this. I'm going to quote Tim Keller again. This is very, very important. Keller writes, idols are not necessarily sinful things, but good and basic things elevated into being ultimate things. As a matter of fact, I would imagine, especially when I'm speaking to a nice, good-looking, well-dressed crowd such as yourself, I doubt there are many of us who kind of go, yeah, there's a sinful thing. I'm just going to plunge headlong into it. That's usually not how our hearts work, especially as believers. But here's what our heart, how our hearts normally work. There are good things in our life. They're actually gifts from God. They're things like relationships, family, kids, grandkids. Maybe we're still working. It's a job. It's a career. Maybe it's a concept, power, control, approval. We want everybody to be happy with us. We want to be in control of everything. Or maybe it's a political ideology. Maybe it's an idea of some form. We take those good things and we elevate it into ultimate things. And when we do that, the result, yuck. I'm just going to put it that way. All the list, including the sexual sins, all the list of things is the fruit of a worship problem. Look closely with me. Notice the language of exchange in verse 25. 
Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. See, that's what our heart is doing all the time. It's exchanging. See, the gospel is an exchange of Christ for us, of his righteousness for ours. So the problem is an exchange. Remember two weeks ago when we talked about the gospel being the power of God? Because in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. See, what we need most in life is this righteousness, a right standing, knowing that we are approved, we are accepted. It's more than just love. It's approved of God looking and saying, you're my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. Do you know why that is? That's because we've exchanged, we've put aside our faulty, awful righteousness, and we've said, Father, give me Jesus's righteousness. That sense of being okay, of having a right standing. So if we're not, so here's how the problem works. Understand the problem. If we're not getting our righteousness, if we're not getting our sense of a right standing of being okay from God, and this is even as believers, this becomes the heart of our sanctification as well. If you're not getting your satisfaction, your security, your joy, your happiness, your significance from the righteousness of Christ, you will never be left in a vacuum. You will look for it somewhere else. That's how the heart works. And it will produce all sorts of evil. And it can be anything. One of the practical things Dr. Keller does best is he offers a set of diagnostic questions to help us identify where we've exchanged the truth of God. The truth of God that says Christ is our right standing, our okayness for a lie that says I can find my righteousness somewhere else. He challenges us to ask questions like what is my greatest nightmare? What do I worry about the most? What keeps me going? What do I rely on or comfort myself with when things go bad or get difficult? What do I think most easily about? What does my mind go to when I am free, when I have free time? What makes me feel the most self-worth? You start answering some of these questions and you look for some of the common themes and all of a sudden you will see what it is that's controlling your heart. What it is that's governing your heart. Is it the righteousness of Christ that leads to freedom and joy and the fruit of the Spirit and love and true satisfaction? Or is it another functional master that will always let us down, will always deceive us, and will never satisfy? All right, you've had enough of the problem, right? You're like, come on, Jeff, get to the solution. Let's understand the solution. What is it? And it shouldn't surprise you. It's the gospel. If if the heart of the problem is exchanging the truth of God for a lie, what's the heart of the solution? You've got to exchange the lie for the truth. What did Jesus himself say? You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But see, here's one of the issues The truth is not only a set of information or propositions. We need to learn how to appropriate or apply the gospel, the truth, 
to our lives. See, there is a dynamic to appropriating the gospel in our lives. Remember what I said earlier, quoting N.T. Wright, wrong thought patterns, wrong worship leads to wrong behavior. This is why Paul will later in the Romans say, we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. And the renewing of our mind, we're not, author I love is Jamie Smith, and Jamie Smith says, we're not brains on a stick. That's not a correct doctrine of man. So renewing of your mind is don't act like robots going, I'm justified, I'm justified. That's not going to work. There's a pattern, a template, a certain way of thinking and worshiping that we have to adopt. And that pattern involves understanding the dynamics and the understanding that our issues are always an issue of worship with what we are looking for, for righteousness. There is a discipline, there is an effort to living out of the gospel. There is a challenge to living by grace. I actually think living by simple principles, living by law, is actually much easier. You either have discipline or you don't have discipline. It's pretty easy to check off if you're doing well or not. Oh, there's the, print, there's the commandments, I did them, boom, boom, boom. I feel good about myself. Living by grace kind of gets squishier. What am I trusting in for righteousness? Ooh, why did I respond to criticism that hard? Why did I respond? Oh, my goodness. All that person said is they didn't like that point in the sermon, and I'm in a bad mood for four months. Huh. Maybe I need to check, am I looking to something other than Jesus for my righteousness? Am I looking to something... Am I making it about me? And this is where the dynamics have to be about repentance and faith. Dr. Keller again says, the basic analysis of a gospel approach is that your problem is that you're looking to something besides Christ for your happiness. We need to repent and rejoice. See, if sin is caused by exchanging the truth of God for the lies of idols, the gospel dynamic involves an exchange of worship. I put down and I put aside and I turn from looking to anything other than Jesus as my righteousness, and I turn to Jesus for my happiness, my self-worth. He is my righteousness. And Dr. Keller says we have to learn to rest in what Jesus has done and offers, and we have to recognize that that is so much deeper than, again, just believing facts. Remember, in his death, he was treated as if he sinned. His death was an exchange. He died instead of, as the substitute for our dying. He took the very real wrath of God that I'm speaking about this morning. He took everything that will be held account. Our judgment was brought into the middle of history in the present, and Jesus took our judgment upon himself, so that for the believer, for the Christian, your judgment is past. It is gone. It is taken. That's why Paul can write later on, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say, I believe in Jesus, and I'm not condemned. Whoops, I sinned. I'm condemned. I believe in Jesus. I'm not condemned. Oh, I'm believing again. Not condemned. No, there is 
no condemnation. That means the scandal of it is, I'm believing, no condemnation, I'm sinning. And yes, this is a daring thing to say. I'm sinning, still no condemnation. And in fact, unless you believe that, you're probably trying not to sin more as a way, you're doing it more for yourself than you are for God because you're doing it as a way to placate God and make yourself feel better. You're not doing it for the glory of God. We need to learn to rest and rejoice in what Jesus has done for us. That's the only solution. The only solution is grace. Dr. Keller says, rejoicing in the Bible is so much deeper than just being happy about something. Rejoicing is an issue of worship. You must constantly ask, what am I worshiping at this moment? He writes, to rejoice is to treasure a thing, to assess its value, to reflect on its beauty and importance until your heart rests in it and tastes the sweetness of it. So rejoicing is a way of praising God until the heart is sweetened, until it relaxes its grip on anything else it thinks it needs. Friends, what is your heart holding on to tightly that you think you have to have? I'm here to tell you only Jesus will satisfy. Let's learn to treasure to rest in, to rejoice in, to worship deeply the majesty, the beauty, the sweetness of Jesus dying on the cross for you, being raised to life for your justification, giving you his righteousness, exchanging his life for yours. Rest in and rejoice that Christ is your righteousness. He's your beauty. He's your acceptance. He's your power. He is your lovability. He is your competence. He is your being good enough. He is your being significant and important. The only thing that changes you is what you worship. You are what you worship. Father, may we learn and practice cultivating worshiping you. It's the only thing that's going to change us. And Lord, we're not going to be just changed instantaneously. That is not how it works. This is a challenge. This is a battle. As a matter of fact, that's why legalism and moralism is so tempting. In many ways, it's just so much straightforward. Do the right thing, avoid the wrong thing. But that's not how the gospel works. And I pray that you would convince us of the gospel dynamics, how the gospel works in our life, that we would, in a sense, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Explore what are the areas of righteousness that we're looking to other than Jesus and that we would truly be happy in Jesus. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Alas, and did my Savior bleed.
Friends, now receive the Lord's benediction. May the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now, this week, and forevermore. Amen. Omaha. Omaha. <laughs> 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 Not too bad. I'm returning. If you would return. Here, okay, I'll do that. Thank you.